Luke rebuke. A Luke rebuke. the Lord's blessing on our fathers. We come before you this morning. We look to you for your blessing upon us as, as we look into your word that these things in Luke would be a blessing to our hearts as we review the character of our Savior and see who he is and what he's like and what he came to do. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts in him. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I think last time we were looking at the first section, and I, I'm i assuming that we got all the way through it. I really don't remember, but we're going to assume that I did. That first section opens with a couple of stories with Zechariah and Elizabeth and describes them as godly priests who were just, and uh, then, then goes on to describe their great fall, Zechariah in particular, as he did not believe the word of the angel. And uh, they're humbling as a result of that. And then you've got Mary, who is described as a young maiden with no particular title, and then she's engaged to Joseph. But she believed the word of the angel, and she goes on to comment about how she was, how God puts down the proud and lifts up the lowly. And uh, so we, the the first part there, we just see this reversal of the the ones that would be described in society as high brought down, the one that was low, lifted up. But then the story continues talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth and shows how they were lifted back up again as they believed the word of the angel and named their son John. And Zachariah, being filled with his Holy Spirit, describes all the great things that God is going to do to Israel. And so they become almost a metaphor of the nation of Israel themselves who are, spiritually speaking, are a high and lofty nation, but they have been really... At this time, uh, civic, civically speaking, they were brought down low under the, the thumb of the Romans. And Zacharias says that God will remember them and will bring them back up. Uh, and then the, uh, the story shifted and, and looked at the birth of the Lord Jesus. And <clears throat> the thing that has always impressed me with that is that if you're going to deliver a people who are oppressed and they're down low. You you have to have the power to defeat the one that's oppressing them. And normally in a situation like that, if you can defeat the one that's oppressing them, then you have the power to oppress them as well. And a lot of times that's what happens because it, uh, I mean, you can look at the example of Moses. As Moses would bring them out of wilderness, you see how the people would go with him, and then they would go against him, and there was always this conflict. They were like they were—it was a, a burden for Moses. And you know, we notice how Moses did not become a dictator over him; how he became one of them. He was—he was a prince, and then he was brought down low. And when he came before Pharaoh, he was one of the Israelites. He was not above them; he was one of them. And as he led them out into the wilderness, he was one of them. <clears throat> And it was God who demonstrated the power to deliver them. So there's that challenge of lifting a people out of oppression, that you have to have power, but if you're not careful, that power becomes a new form of oppression upon them. So it's so neat to see how the Lord came as the the Son of God, but he came in such a lowly position. He He came when the Son of David was paying taxes to a Roman Empire, a Roman Emperor. He came wrapped in swaddling clothes, uh, lying in the manger. 
he came uh, introduced to shepherds who uh, who were lowly in society, although he was announced by angels at the same time. So there's that paradox there of how he is above all, and yet he came as one lowly. Now, as the story develops then, the next thing Luke draws our attention to is how Jesus was brought to the temple and they were, they offered the sacrifices that were commanded by the law. And this particular sacrifice was one where if you had a firstborn son, he was the Lord's, uh, and so you were to redeem him. You bring these sacrifices and you redeem that son back uh, and he's yours. And so what we see is the Lord Jesus becoming uh, where he was son of God, now he's son of Joseph. He's, he's truly man. There's, he's not, there's no elevation above anybody else. He's down there and and Simeon, as he comes up and he looks at Jesus, he says, this is the one, he's going to expose the thoughts of the people of Israel. And there are many who are going to fall, many who are going to be raised up, that he would accomplish this uh, switcheroo of those lifted up would be brought down and those down low would be brought up. <clears throat> and the uh, the widow, Anna, she she delighted to see him, and she went and told everybody else who looked for the kingdom of God. So the, the people looking for God's rule, for his kingdom, would be the ones that would be lifted up by him. And then the story finally closes with the Lord in the temple. He's going to do his father's business. He's doing the will of God. And then his parents come and say, no, you come with us. And he went with them and was subject to them. And you see a young boy being subject to his parents. This is... No different, uh, and on all appearances, he's no different than any other man, any other person. He really takes the place of, of a man. And that is the Savior then that is presented in his arrival, how he's going to come. He became one of us. Now, the second section begins in chapter 3, and it, it opens with the uh, a view of John the Baptist. <clears throat> uh, it talks about him in verse 2. It talks about how the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region round about Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of, the Lord, of God. So he's that one that fulfills the prophecy. This is and probably the, I think this is the only prophet where we have, he was, it was prophesied that he would come. All other prophets showed up on the scene. <clears throat> God brought them, presented them before the people. But this is one that God wrote in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied about saying there would become a prophet that would go before and prepare the way of the Lord. And so here John, and for that reason, he's one of the greatest prophets. There was no other prophet predicted. And uh, so he comes, and his purpose <coughs> is to, uh, is summarized in verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He wants to draw people's attention to the salvation of God. And so we begin to understand a little bit, uh, as was hinted also in section 1, 
the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's linked very tightly to salvation, the salvation of God. Now, as John the Baptist comes, how does he, how does he do this? How does he, what approach does he take to get people to see the salvation of God? And the way Luke presents it in verse 7, it's, you'll notice uh, he presents John speaking of the coming judgment. Verse 7 says, he, saw, he said to the multitudes who came to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. <clears throat> so the way Luke presents it is he doesn't... There's no word of the Messiah here. This is, this is strictly a warning of the coming judgment of God. So John the Baptist is very much uh, like the other prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, that they spoke of the coming judgment of God and said you need to repent to be delivered from his judgment. So John brings the same message. The judgment of God is coming. His wrath is coming. But we'll find that the difference, and, and uh, you know, you've got to appreciate how, he, how he's, he, he talks about this. I mean, he's, I guess that, uh, to see what he really, to appreciate what he says here, you think back on the other prophets as they brought the warning of the judgment to come, they told people that in order to be saved from the judgment, you needed to be more diligent to keep the law. You were failing at keeping the Sabbath. You were failing at watching out for the widows and orphans. You were, we were worshiping idols and so forth. It's all law-related things. Here, he says to them in verse 8, he says, you're, you're saying you have all your confidence in the fact that you're a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham. And so you think by descent, because you're the people of God, that God is going to automatically receive you to himself. That the wrath is coming, but you will be kept safe because you're the people of God. He says, that's baloney. That's an erroneous belief. That's a lie. That's not going to save you. And right now, the axe is laid at the foot of trees. The, the uh, orchard keeper has, has come. He's walking up and down the rows, and he's checking out to see which trees are bearing fruit. This is, you've had your opportunity to grow and mature. Now, are you bearing fruit? If you're bearing fruit, he'll keep you. If you're not bearing fruit, then you're going to be chopped out. And the whole orchard is going to face this. It's, uh, the orchard is not going to be spared just because it's within the orchard. It has to do with whether or not you're bearing fruit. And so then the people said, well, what do we do? And he says, now notice what he instructs them. This is, this is the interesting part, is how he does not refer to the law. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. And likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, certainly these things are in alignment with the law. But he doesn't tell them that you need to be more diligent about keeping the Sabbath. You need to be at the synagogue more frequently. What he tells them 
if you if you think about what it takes for a person to do these things that he says. So if a person has two coats or two loaves of bread and somebody doesn't have any, you take that extra coat or that extra loaf of bread and you give it to them. That extra coat is your backup. And that extra loaf of bread is your food for tomorrow. So you have that backup coat because if this one gets dirty, then you can swap coats. That one can get washed. Or if this one gets torn, then you got the backup one. Or that you keep the second loaf of bread because tomorrow you're going to need bread too. So to give away your backup means that tomorrow you'll be without bread or without a coat. And that means then that you have to be trusting God, that God will provide, that he was the one that gave you two coats in the first place and the two loaves in the first place. And so if you're going to give away, you're going to have to trust God again for tomorrow. So you see how he's, he's calling them to depend upon God. And the tax collector, they're not supposed to collect more than what is appointed for you. Legally, they were allowed to take a little extra for themselves. It was their pay. They got... They, you know how you go to a restaurant sometimes with a big group and you, you go and, uh, and you go to pay the bill and here they've got the gratuity on the bottom and they put an 18% on there for you. It helped you out so much. And here's the extra total. Here's your total. Like they, they take, they dictate to you, here's your tip and I'm taking it. And that's what the tax collectors did. We're going to collect your tax and here's my tip. Thank you. There's no voluntary about it. They were allowed to do that legally. They weren't. It wasn't. They didn't get in trouble. If somebody called them out for it, they they didn't get in trouble. So why wouldn't you do it? Well, because if you're working for God, you're going to do what is right. If you if you view if they were to view their authority as given to them by God, then they would be accountable to God not to the Roman soldiers who stood behind them. In the so the, they were to, he called them to acknowledge and recognize the reality of God in their life. That he's an integral part of what they do and that they ought to behave as if God is going to hold them accountable for what they did. And the soldiers, they, could, they had power in the streets. They were like the cops. They could intimidate you. They could... Uh, you know, you think we got racial problems here. They should have gone back to Israel. Then you would have seen racial problems and bigotry and everything else like that. But the police, as they are, the, the soldiers, as they roam the streets. And, and they got away with it. There were no judges that would convict the Roman soldiers. They were allowed to do it. And he says, no, you, you need to realize that God is watching how you abuse your, or use your power. Use it in a way that honors God. Not law as much as it is acknowledging and recognizing that God is an integral part of your life and everything. You need to trust him, you need to work for him, and you need to recognize that he is watching what you do. He called them to a, a life living before God. It's a little different, I think, than what the other prophets uh, the other prophets, when they came to the children of Israel, what they taught and what they warned people. Now, the people, as they, they heard this, they said, this is, maybe this guy is the Messiah. And John said, no, he says in verse 16, I am not the Messiah. That I baptize with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandals trap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. 
He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You want to know what the Messiah is like? He's not going to come and just tell you how you ought to live. He is actually going to be the one that gathers you. If you're living the way you ought to live, he will gather you to himself. If you are not living the way you ought to live, if you're ignoring God in your life and you're only giving him lip service, you will be part of that fire that cannot be put out. And he is far greater than I, says John. This, that's where it, the rubber will really meet the road. Here, I am warning you, you've still got time. But when he comes, that's where you're, uh, when you'll really have to give an account. And you, It's his word that will de- determine whether you live and die. And it's interesting then how Luke throws in the end of uh, John's ministry, talking about Herod, in verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. That little, little two-word phrase that he puts in there, verse 20, above all, Herod was an evil king. And he had done wicked things. And John had rebuked him. And there was a lot of wicked things that he had done. Killing his brother, killing his children. I don't know what I mean. History records a whole bunch of terrible things that Herod did. But above all of that, above all those evils that Herod did, greater evil was that he put John into prison. He disregarded the warning from God that came through John. And he put him in prison. That was the greatest evil. Now, if John is only the forerunner, and one greater than John is following, if it's a big, big deal to disregard John's word, how much greater is it to disregard the word of the one that follows? So it's a serious deal. But John told the people, he says, look, the... The Savior is coming to gather the wheat into his barn. He is coming to collect his own to himself before the judgment comes. So he prepared the way people would see the salvation of the Lord. It was a salvation away from sin, away from living a life of disregard to God and living a life under the word of God. Then Luke begins to shift a little, and uh, he turns the focus onto the Lord Jesus, and he's going to bring to us the introduction of the Lord Jesus to, uh, as he begins his ministry. So he's going to, basically he's introducing Jesus and his ministry to, to us. Verse 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. So he's kind of gone back. Verse 20, he went all the way up to where John was in prison. Now he backs up in time and talks about how when Jesus also was baptized by John the Baptist, while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. That's quite the introduction. This has never happened before or since that any man would be baptized and a voice would come from heaven and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, 
Luke doesn't waste any time. He says there is no question or doubt that this is the one that was coming after John, who is greater than John. This is the long look for Messiah. This is the one. As it's he he just tells us that. I mean, verse twenty, he wraps up a thought. John gets shut into prison. And 21, he starts, he kind of uh, begins a new thought, but it's very short. And it ends with the, with the concept, you are my beloved son and you are well pleased. And immediately after that, he begins to go talking about the genealogy. It's a very odd way to put these things together. So as we look at the genealogy, what we see is uh, Jesus himself, in verse 23, began his ministry at about 30 years of age, as be, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, who was of Heli was of Matat, of Levi, of Melchi, of Janna, and so on. It goes on and on through all these names. Clear up to Adam in verse 38. Uh, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam, the son of God. That's interesting because we had just read about how the voice from heaven came saying, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased where he speaks, where Jesus is introduced as the Son of God. So what does it mean to be the Son of God? Well, there's two terms, two, uh, two titles given to the Lord in the Gospels. There's the Son of Man, and there's the Son of God. And normally I would think that Son of Man would speak of his humanity, and Son of God would speak of his deity. But the way Luke writes this out, is he says that's the exact opposite. <clears throat> Adam was the Son of God. In the sense, is not. Uh, it was in a sense that he had no other physical. He had no physical father. He was his life began by God. God was the one that uh, who put that little spark of life in that body of clay and brought life to that body. It came from God, and so it was with the Lord Jesus. He had no physical father. <clears throat> His life began, physical life, his physical life began by the intervention of God. God started it directly as a man. So when he speaks of the Son of God, he's speaking of a man who's, as a human, as a physical man, that physical body's life began by an intervention of God. And so when God says, you are my beloved son, he's saying, here is a man who lives up to my every expectation of what I intended for man when I first created him. I am well pleased in him. This is the one, this is, uh, this is what I intended. This is what I wanted when I created man in the first place. And Luke ties this concept then with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit depending upon him. And then we get to the verse at the end of the chapter, we have Adam, the son of God, in the next verse in, in chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Well, the filling with the Holy Spirit is something that happens, can, that can happen to people, humans. We have a body of flesh and in there we have our spirit. And the Holy Spirit can come in and dwell inside us as well. So we see man, or we see Jesus as a man, as a human, though he's God. You know, he didn't 
his existence, unlike Adam, Adam's existence didn't begin until God gave him physical life. But Jesus is different. He came from heaven, so he was there before. His body's, the spark of life in his body just came from God, but he lived before his body ever lived. That makes sense. So he's different. He is of God. Or he is he is the son of God. You know, he came from heaven. He is, what do you say? He's, he's God. He's deity. But now Luke begins to show us that as a man being filled with the Holy Spirit, he returns from Jordan. The first thing he introduces to us is the temptation in chapter 4, where Satan begins to tempt Jesus. Satan asked him in verse 3, he says, okay, now who, who are you? If, if you're really the son of God, and we saw what you know, God said, you are my beloved son, and you am well pleased. So if you are that one, that son of God, and whom God is well, so well pleased, then command this stone to be bred. I mean, who, show that you really are the son of God, that you, I, I don't know what Satan was thinking. Was Satan thinking the son of God? Show us your deity that God has uh, made you something, and, and so you go and command these stones to be bred. Whatever it was that Satan was trying to tempt, and Jesus' response emphasizes the fact that he's a man. He says, it is written in verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. In other words, the, when man was created, God's intent was that man would be dependent upon him for things necessary for life. And specifically dependent upon his word, and that you would live by his word. And he says, I have every intent to live that way, dependent upon the word of God. I will not I will not go out and support or sustain my own life through my own power, independent of God. I will depend upon God. He identifies with men. So then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. He did a similar temptation, I think, when he came to Moses. Uh, by the time Moses was, in, was brought to the palace, it was pretty evident who God would bring as a deliverer. I mean, it's, Moses was in the river and the princess came and saw him and she brought him out and his mother was brought to him and she nursed him and everything. I think it would take a real dummy not to realize that this guy here that just got pulled out of the river has something special that God is tending to use him in a great way. And I think the devil knew that Moses was the one that was going to be delivering Israel. So he came to Moses and he said, Moses, if you're going to be the deliverer, you got a, a taskmaster here that's beating up an Israelite. Start your deliverance. And he goes and he kills that taskmaster, and that didn't work at all. Just as Satan intended, you know, do, do what I tell you. Kill this man. You, you know. It's like the same kind of thing here. You are the Son of God. You are the one that's promised to come. You are the Messiah. You are to be given. This whole world is eventually going to be yours. You are going to... So why don't... I just give it to you and we'll be done with it. And you, all you have to do is compromise a little bit. And you, you know, if you're going to be such a man, you, people do this all the time where they, they, in order to, for a greater good, they'll compromise, they'll bend the knee to me for just a little while and then they'll change their, and then they'll, they'll stop bending their knee and then they'll go on and take their authority or whatever it is that I've, I give them. You know, like that's what people do. If, if you've got to achieve a goal 
And in order to do it, you've got to compromise for just a little while, and you've got every intention that you'll set the compromise aside after you've achieved your goal. I mean, we do that. And it seems that's what Satan is tempting him to do. Only the Lord Jesus, he can't compromise. Because either he would lie or it would be true. Either he would be lying and bending the knee to Satan or he would be making it true that Satan would be his master. I just, it, he can't do that. But the Lord says, you shall worship the Lord your God. You shall serve, and him only you shall serve. You shall bend the knee to God alone. Seems kind of weird to think of him saying that as a as deity to God. To, but as a man, as he identifies as a man, he says, I will serve God alone. And then Satan brings him to the pinnacle of the temple and, and calls him to throw himself down. And he quotes a psalm. The psalm is a beautiful psalm that calls upon people to trust in God and know that if, God, if you trust in God, God will keep you. And Satan twists that psalm to say, look, God has promised to keep those who trust in him. Let's see if he'll do it. Cast yourself off this temple and see if God will support you. And Satan says, or Jesus answered and said to him, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. To not tempt the Lord your God means that no matter how hard it gets, how upside down life becomes, you never lose, you never lose confidence that God is with you. To get in a rough situation and say, oh, what? How come God has abandoned me? How come he has left me? Where, if you're really with me, God, then why don't you? And that's to tempt the Lord your God. The Lord says, I've been with you. I'm you with you. He told the children of Israel, I'm with you. And they got the point. And he said, yes, God really with us. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Full confidence that no matter how upside down life would become, as it happens to us as people, God would be with them, and he would trust God. So the devil departed from him, and then it says in verse 14 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. News of him went throughout all the surrounding region. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So it seems like this is all one thought, beginning in verse 21, about while the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and the thought comes to conclusion in verse 14, talks about the power of the Spirit, and in the middle it talks about him being filled with the Spirit. That as a man, he was uh, dependent upon God, he was trusting in God, and he knew that God, and he, he rested in the confidence of God's promise, knowing that God was with him. He was filled with the Spirit. So then Luke, uh, so that's, that's our Savior. That's what he is like. That's who the Messiah is that he comes, that he, he identifies with us uh, as a man, but he's a perfect man, totally dependent upon God. Then Luke takes uh, turns and begins to show us as he... Uh, goes out to Israel as he begins his ministry what kind of uh, form it's going to take 
what his ministry is going to be focused on. And so he tells us about how Luke came, or how Jesus came to Nazareth. This is not the first time the Lord taught. Nor is it uh, the, the first time that he's been noticed because he'll reference later on that Jesus will reference about how he had been in Capernaum and how the people in Capernaum had been impressed by him. And so the news had come back to Nazareth. So Luke doesn't take us to the very, very beginning, the first time Jesus stood up and taught at Nazareth, or the first time that he stood up and taught, the first time he was there. But he takes us to this story in particular. When he comes to Nazareth, he's given this uh, the scroll to read, and, it, and he begins to read in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the concept of the Spirit is still with us. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The pas- And then he tells them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So the passage he reads is a beautiful proclamation of the gospel. And he says, as he quotes the passage, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I have been, the Spirit has been bestowed upon me, anointed me. In other words, there is a specific purpose. There is, David was anointed to be king. Saul was anointed to be king. And, and different ones were anointed to be priests and so forth. They had, they were anointed, they had, when they were anointed, that, that set a purpose on their life, a direction on what they would do. I have been anointed, is what he's saying, and my anointing is for a purpose to preach the gospel to the poor. To preach good news to the poor. And this is the good news. To heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim except for the Lord. This is a beautiful proclamation of the gospel. Because how many people out there are brokenhearted? And how many people would like to have healing to their broken heart? Or how many people find themselves as captives? Captives to their sin, captives to their to, the, to sin around them and would like to be set at liberty. And, and the Lord has the power to heal a broken heart. He has the power to take somebody that is uh, captive to the not only their own sin, but the sin around them. Like the situation is just dragging them down, their, their life situation. He has the power to take somebody in that situation and set them free. So though they're still in the same situation where everything is going to be is trying to drag them down, but they're free of that. They don't. It's, you, sometimes you see that with people, believers, who are in really hard situations, persecution or whatever, and they thrive. He's set liberty to captives recovery of sight to the blind, to be under the shadow of a lie, to be not knowing what the truth is, to be able to see what is true, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I mean, these are is a wonderful, wonderful gospel message. Their response is almost shocking. They ask a similar question to Satan. They said, is this not Joseph's son? You know, Satan asked the same thing. If you are, only was the son of God, who is this guy? And they asked that because they knew him. He had grown up among them, so they'd seen him run up and down the streets and so forth and seen his handiwork as he worked with his father and whatever else. They knew who he was, and so they asked the question. And Jesus said, you guys, he said, you will surely say this proverb to me, 
physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. He says, what you guys are doing is you're saying, you're saying, doctor, you say you have a cure. Cure yourself first and then come and cure us. Let us see that it actually works first. He says, look, what I have done is I have given you a gospel message, brokenhearted, captive, and all the rest of that, and you want me to prove it before you actually come and believe in me. You, if you're brokenhearted, you should come and let me heal your broken heart. But they weren't embracing him. And so then he said in verse 24, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. And to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. And what he's telling them is that during these prophets, Elijah was being hunted by the king. The only place he found safety was not to a faithful widow inside the land of Israel. He was sent outside, just on the edges, the fringes of Israel. He was sent outside of Israel and there he found safety because that widow recognized that he was a prophet of God and she hid him from everybody that was hunting him down. But there was no widow in Israel that was faithful that would recognize that he was a prophet of God and would hide him. Indictment against Israel. And Elisha had a similar situation where there was a lot of lepers in Israel, but none of them recognized that he was a prophet and came to him looking for healing. Naaman did. He was a Syrian, their enemy. He recognized it, and he came down and he was healed. Those two great prophets in their house, Israel, did not recognize them for who they were, that they were prophets of God. Oh, sure, they took the benefits, but they didn't really believe it. No other leper came and was healed. So he exposes them. He says, you guys are the same way. You haven't changed from your forefathers. You've got the prophet comes and he proclaims to you a good message. And you ignore it. You say, well, who is this guy? Well, when he exposed them, it says in verse 28 that all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They knew it was true. That's what happens. When you find somebody in sin and you expose them, and they know it's deep down true inside their heart, but they don't think it's really their fault. Whew. Boy, oh boy, they get mad. I've seen my cousin one time got pulled over for speeding. And I don't know, like that, I don't know, but he was mad. He was, he was, he, he told that cop, like, what do you mean you pulled me over for speeding? Check that, did you, did you check your gun before me? Did it get calibrated before you went out? And all the rest of that, he was just ticked off. I was like, why were you ticked off? You were speeding. Usually if we justify ourselves in our sin and then somebody points out our sin, you lose it. And that's what they did. They thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down on a cliff. And, and so he called down fire from heaven like Elijah did and burnt them all to a crisp. I mean, it was either he collects the wheat in the barn or he burns them with unquenchable fire. But no, it says he passing through the midst of them and he went his way. Which is in contrast, all these two stories are very much connected to this next one. There's nothing to separate the two. And so it talks about how he goes down to Capernaum, and again, he's teaching on a Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, which is similar to the people of Nazareth. They were amazed at the, at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. And uh, here they are astonished. And, and Luke brings out that his word, in verse 32, talks about his word was with authority. 
Now in the synagogue, in verse 33, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What business do we have with you, Jesus of Nazareth? That's, that's really what it means. What do we have to do with you? What business do we have with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We see what's behind that curtain of flesh. We see that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus just ignored him and passed through his way. Oh, Jesus called him out. He said, Jesus rebuked him and said, muzzled, what the word means. Silence, be muzzled, come out of him. And the demon did it. Didn't even argue. Boom. Out he came, didn't hurt him. And they were amazed at this. They spoke among themselves saying, what a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And this is where the thought comes to an end. Verse 37, he's got a summary here. The report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So these two stories, Nazareth and Capernaum, are connected. And then the thought comes to a close. Notice how differently he treated the demon with the people. No patience for the demon. As soon as the demon opened his mouth, he said, Muzzled. Get out of him. Boom. The people went to take him and throw him over a cliff. And he said nothing. He passed through. This is the way he came. It's... What's his attitude towards us when he came? What's his attitude when we are rejecting him and we are turning our back on him? What is, how does he, how is he going to respond to us? He didn't tell these people to be muzzled or he didn't slay them with fire from heaven. It's like he cared about them. And he left them for another time. Now, the section doesn't quite end yet. We'll wrap it up here real quick. But in verse 38, we begin to be see what Jesus could do. As the Holy One of God, what he could do. And it talks about how he, he left that synagogue and he went to Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, probably COVID. And they made a request of him concerning her. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever, just like he rebuked the demon. And it left her, just like the demon left. He's got power. And immediately she rose up and served them. And then it goes on, talks about how as that day went on, the sun was setting and there was lots of sick people came to him. And he laid his hands on them and he healed every one of them. And the demons, he rebuked them, cast them out. And he had no problems. Didn't matter what sickness, what demon. Boom, 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 boom. Everybody. He's well on the way of starting his kingdom and taking over the world. I mean, these people are going to serve him because of what he's done for them. Except for that's not what he's about. In verse 42, it talks about when it was day, he departed and went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him. They came to him. They tried to keep him from leaving them. Start your kingdom here. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Yahweh, and that ends the section. The purpose for which I was sent is to preach that gospel message that he preached in Nazareth, not to gather a crowd of people around him and establish an earthly kingdom and take over the world. It was to preach 
that gospel message of the kingdom of God throughout the cities. He was sent for that purpose, and that's what he would do. That is the Savior then. That is the Messiah who came. He identifies as one of us, and he's teaching the word of God, the kingdom of God, that wonderful gospel of salvation. And so as we go through Luke, we should anticipate seeing that that purpose being played out in his life, that he goes out and he preaches kingdom of God, the gospel to the people. Our Father, we just want to thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his coming, for his love towards us, and for the salvation that we have found in him. May he be lifted up, may he be exalted and honored. In his name, amen.